The first one is cryptoscatology. Crypto is hidden and scat is animal dropping. It's the study of hidden animal droppings. The dickheads are presented in color. I'm curious, did he ever did you ever see or did you know of any like weird fans, especially with the type of writing that he did? Did he have any stalkers or anything like that? I don't think Phil had stalkers, but he would give lectures at Cal State Fullerton in Dr. McNelly's classes, and sometimes the students had really strange questions. Strange even from Phil's perspective. One of the weirdest was Clans of the Alphane Moon has, um, it's a psychiatric hospital and the people with different diagnoses separate into clans. So you have the paranoids and the schizophrenics and the autistics and the hebephrenics, which Phil shortened to hebes, H-E-B-E-S. And a student asked him if that was anti-Semitic. She seemed to think they were Hebrews. So would you say that Phil's fandom really started after he passed away? For the most part, Phil always had a following, but he wasn't well known in the United States during his lifetime. He was known and respected in Europe and especially in France and Russia. But, you know, we didn't have much contact with the Soviet Union. There was this little thing called the Cold War. But he did have an editor in Estonia, and I've forgotten his name, but they did correspond quite a bit. And sometimes Phil even got paid, which was... In the Soviet Union, they had this idea that writers didn't deserve any money for their work, but... Uh, Seemed like they didn't think anybody deserved money for their work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's why Phil never got paid for Solar Lottery from the Polish publisher. <clears throat> they were willing to pay him in Polish zolotis, but there was no way to convert them to dollars. And apparently they did try to get what they called hard currency. Couldn't do it. And Stanislav Lem kept trying to get Phil to fly to Poland to collect his royalties, but there were only 750 zolotis, and we figured we didn't, there wasn't an exchange rate, but we figured they couldn't be worth more than 20 bucks. And he's supposed to fly to Poland <laughs> to get them? Worth the collectibles nowadays, probably. Yeah. And Lem kept insisting, oh, no, that's a lot of money. Well, it is in Poland, but Phil didn't have money for the airfare. Certainly not enough to get home. So he was highly suspicious of Lem because of that correspondence. What year was that? 72 or 3. I'm not sure exactly. But we were still living on Quartz Lane, and we moved to Cameo Lane in April of 72. I mean, three, seventy-three. I get the years backwards sometimes. So did oh. he cut off his correspondence with Lem after that? I'm not sure whether he cut it off. He said he did, but Phil was an unreliable witness. 
He also told me he never read the Xerox letter, and turns out he did. Do you think he ever had any kind of memory lapses or any kind of dissociative? No, I think Phil was playing a game he called Minimax. He had read about games theory. In Minimax, you make things so random that even though you can't win the game, you'll never lose. He had another name for it, but I can't think of it at the moment. I wrote it down somewhere. Where did that come from? Oh, it, it, Minimax means acting in a random manner, but it's from games theory. Right, yeah. I don't think Phil quite understood everything that he read. I know he sucked at math and spelling. And I had no sympathy for him sitting at his typewriter yelling, how do you spell? I thought he should look it up himself until I was in my 40s, and I couldn't read the dictionary without a magnifying glass. <laughs> and you said you did a lot of this editing for him, a lot of proofreading? Proofreading mostly, but I wrote significant portions of a scanner darkly. What were, what were some of the contributions that you... Well, the one I remember most clearly is when the guy's car breaks down and he opens the hood. And instead of an engine, he sees a pile of dog poop. He didn't call it poop. But, you know, children might be watching. Uh, and right after Phil typed in that scene, from my notes, he wouldn't let me touch his typewriter. It was his. I had my own. Anyway, um, he was typing away, and so I decided he deserved a snack, and, and I took in a glass of milk and a plate of cookies called Piddle Faddle. They're um, crispy wafers coated in chocolate and rolled in cornflakes. When Phil turned around to get his cookies, he screamed because they looked like dog poop, and they became known as dog S cookies. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of Phil's Biggest themes was what makes us human, like the story that Nick Buchanan went through for us, Explorers We, in which the aliens seem more human than the humans. Yeah. That's where um, I think Ridley Scott totally misunderstood Phil's novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? He wants to make Rick Deckard a replicant, an android. <clears throat> Phil called them androids. When the real point was that Rachel was probably a human who simply lacked empathy and not an android at all. Phil used the term robot here and there. What he had in mind was actually genetically engineered clones. Like um, in the novel, Chris Frauenzimmer is identical to Rachel Rosen. You can't tell them apart by looking at them. That doesn't come through in the movie at all. They're completely different. But they are biological. But they're not considered human because they're manufactured, not born. Some of my themes that are alive today, I mean, that's the theme that comes up in Phillips. Oh, yeah. Anyway, Phil... Phil did inject a lot of humor. It's usually dark humor, but 
some of the dark things he wrote about were so horrible he needed to lighten it up for his own sake as well as his readers. Yeah, tell me about that. You said he liked to tell a lot of jokes and, and whatnot. Um, do you think there's people understand like that the, the, there was a lot more humor? Do you, do you think there's some humor that was mis- not misunderstood to not be humor? Well, that's possible, but I can't think of an example. I do know that in the early days, 72 and 3, when people came over, he was constantly talking about the Nazis, which is what he would do in preparation for writing a book, and he wanted to write the sequel to The Man in the High Castle. And he would speculate about whether Hitler was insane, whether Hitler was dead and they were just trotting out a devil, whether Hitler survived the bunker and escaped or not, and so forth. And and the weird mystical beliefs the SS had. Yeah, there's a lot of occultism. Oh, yeah, big time. I remember Phil saying that when the the Nazis invaded Russia, Hitler actually proclaimed that the German fire would melt the Russian ice. Hitler's generals were really upset big time because they were within a few days' march of Moscow when Hitler said, no, you have to go down to Kiev, take the Ukraine. And actually what he wanted was the port at Sebastopol, Russia's only warm water port still is today, and still a bone of contention. Well, anyway, um... What was Phil's relationship with popular, like, media and advertisements? Because if you look at his work in a broad (laughs) spectrum, so many of the novels and short stories deal with either ad agencies or population manipulation by media. So, for example, The Man Who Japed, um, The Penultimate Truth. There, there, there's always this corporate manipulation of, of the people. And I'm just wondering what Phil's relationship with that was. Well, Phil noticed, especially with his daughters, Anne's daughters actually, how ads could motivate children to pester their parents until they bought them something useless that would probably be broken or, you know, otherwise unusable within days. I've got to get something soft to sit on. So coming back to that theme of advertising in the media, how could he possibly anticipate where things were going with, you know, the technology? Did, was well, reading and studying? Maybe the um, technologists were inspired by his stories. Imagine a world where the billboards know your name and what what you might want to buy today. And then they they have uh, drones that that follow you around and keep blathering at you, buy this brand of shoes, or don't you want some chocolate today? (laughs) It is getting to where if I'm doing research, actually not to buy something, but just to get some fact right in what I'm writing, ads for that will pop up everywhere on the Internet. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's true. There's actually, believe it or not, there are actually, um, there's an organization that's forming to fight for laws to protect against your own brain. I forgot what they called it. I just watched a, a talk from them. Real, they're actual real lawyers saying because there's, 
there's a claim that's being made. There's technologies to, to try to, like... Read your like, mind. Your essentially, like, put, put, put messages in your head. And, and this, huh. this group is saying, we need to have privacy. You know, you own... Because right. your companies are saying, you don't own your own mind. Yeah, that sounds a lot like what happened to Phil. He was hearing voices, and he knew they weren't real, but he kept hearing them. I want to recommend a, actually two books by Robert Guffey. He's a lecturer at Cal State Long Beach. The first one is Cryptoscatology, which is, I love that word, it's a fancy term for brainwashing, or there's nicer words than brainwashing, but that'll do, propaganda, you know, influencing. Well, crypto is hidden and scat is animal dropping. It's the study of Hidden animal droppings. <laughs> and um, the sneaky ways in which subliminal messages, even seemingly harmless uh, articles or ads or whatever, or songs even, that just by the choice of words will influence you. And people don't recognize the really the power of rhetoric and the influence it has on us on a regular basis. Now, the other book by Robert Guffey is called Chameleo. It's like chameleon with the N left off of the N. And C-H-A-M-E-L-E-O. And that is about a real experience that was hot like Phil's. Robert Guffey knew a man who lived in San Diego near the naval base and got mixed up in something quite innocently, and naval intelligence was after him. They put voices in his head, images in his mind. They even had what he called invisible dwarves running around in his apartment. And no matter where he went, they followed him. He drove across the country <clears throat> to visit an old girlfriend, and they'd already told her to have nothing to do with him and to call them if he showed up. And what a great way to discredit people that are at threat by using these technologies. That sounds so unbelievable. Everyone thought he was nuts, but what really convinced Robert Guffey was when the two of them together met the scientist who developed an invisibility cloak, and apparently the military stole his patent. It was a lot like the cloak that Harry Potter uses in the movies. It would simply make you see the background instead of the guy standing in front of you. Yeah, they have the technology. I have a question. With the voices that he was hearing, um, that sounds like a very separate kind of quality and experience from his uh, his spiritual experience. What is it to, I forget the date, it happened exactly? Well, mostly in 1974, but... It went on occasionally till the end of his life, and it happened before. From early childhood, he'd had similar experiences, encounters with people who weren't there, or hearing someone, like when he was in high school and couldn't pass the math exam, his trigonometry, I guess, or geometry. A voice in his head told him how to solve the problem. But if we really look at Dick's work, it thinking back on it. Most of his protagonists 
are perceived as mentally ill, but they end up being right, and it's not terribly demonized. It's it's his portrayal of somebody struggling with either something that may or may not be real is, I feel, very true. Well, yeah, the way Phil saw it, and I see it too, is that except for the very extremes, everybody is a genius at something. Mm -hmm. And frankly, having had IQ tests, all they measure is your vocabulary and your ability to do simple math problems. Yeah, it's not tailored to the individual in their abilities. Well, they labeled Lord Byron as, as a, I don't know what term they used then, but very mentally challenged. Didn't speak till he was seven years old, and he became one of the greatest poets of the English language. And I think that's a problem when you just try to generalize everybody. As somebody who was fourth, and this might be too personal yeah. for this particular pod, <laughs> but uh, like I was in special ed classes up until like 10th grade. Wow. Until they realized that I'm not dumb, I'm just a little lazy and not learning in a specific way. Yeah. Well, maybe little George Byron, or George Gordon, I mean, Lord Byron, had nothing to say. I used to think I must have imagined it or confused dreams with reality, but my memory of the second grade at elementary school is gone. I can't even name the teacher. I remember a very little. It turns out my brother, who was three years older, said, yeah, this group of students from, uh, graduate students from UCLA came and selected a few students to study, supposedly about self-esteem and leadership qualities, but our parents knew nothing about it. And there, I remember going to these special assemblies, special assemblies in the school auditorium, and there'd be between 12 and 15 students from all the grades through per, from first through sixth, and they'd give us these little tests, and I think they were looking for people who could do remote viewing. My brother, my older and smarter brother, Steve, remembered the little self-esteem test where you toss a beanbag. They don't care whether you actually hit the target. They care how um, optimistic you are. Do you choose the closest one or the farthest one or the one in the middle? That's a measure, supposedly, of self-esteem. I kind of remember the beanbag. But the first thing they had us do was draw a picture of yourself. And I vividly remember drawing the picture, plus the fact that I never got it back to take home and show mom. That was also a measure of self-esteem, which depended on whether it was a stick figure or more filled out, and whether there was indi indication of motion or details in your face and so forth. I think I came out in the middle, but I don't, I didn't realize until I was an adult, a fellow student was doing a thesis for psychology, and he needed volunteers to take the MMPI, the crazy test, Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. I already knew every question on it. It was so familiar, I knew I'd taken it before. I had taken it as a seven-year-old, 
When do these memories start coming back? Well, they, they would come back in bits and pieces, and I think, no, that must have been a dream where I imagined it, something like that. But then my brother pointed out that in 1968, an article about that study was published in Scientific American, and one of the children's pictures that they showed in the article was his. Yeah. So they definitely did the study, and they definitely never told our parents. Did you ever have conversations with Phil about all this? Oh, I tried to, but he was kind of busy with his own he stuff. He used any of these in his work? He was more into using his own, and you write your own story. But, you know, I chose to stay with him and not someone else because I was tired of hearing, you know, I'd say I want to be a writer. I'd already published a few things. And, and... People around me would say, oh, you'll never make any money at that, or it's so hard to break into that field. I told Phil I wanted to be a writer. He got me a typewriter and a whole bunch of paper. So, yeah, this is the guy. I guess, what what inspired you to want to write? I'm not sure. Is there anybody in your life that you looked up to? Or? Well, we always had a lot of books, and I loved reading. I was so bored in school. I was an average student until, uh, I guess ninth grade, second half of ninth grade. But I'd be, I had pestered mom until she taught me to read when I was four years old. You have an incredibly sharp memory. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I did last week, but I know <laughs> what I did when I was two. I don't know if I can remember that or that. I remember the, yeah, the, the highlights of the past few days. Anyway, um, yeah, we had lots of books, and what I was really interested in was writing about science. You know, we had the space race, and Mom and Dad had this set of books about the collections at the Smithsonian. And when I saw the frozen baby mammoth that they pulled out of Siberia, I thought, wait a minute. This animal froze how long ago? And he still has hair, and he, yeah, he kind of smells, but his flesh hasn't rotted away. You know, uh, something's wrong with this picture. So I wanted to explore really strange and unusual things, but in the scientific fields. And of course, girls didn't study science. My brother had the invisible man model with all the organs that you could see. My other brother had the telescope. Oh, I just remembered the parakeet. Worst thing Mom ever did. Our favorite uncle, Dad's Uncle Tom, gave us three parakeets, one for each of us, Rick, Steve, and me. The parakeets got sick. All but one died. And I knew that it was my parakeet that lived. But rather than, because I was a little kid, rather than tell me, well, Rick is the oldest. He can take the best care of your bird. Mom just said, no, your bird died. That one's Rick's. And I knew the difference. They weren't the same color. So my Tom, named after Dad's Uncle Tom, became Rick's Tony. But I wasn't allowed to question that it wasn't my parakeet that died. Oh, well, I know that mine lived, but Mom wouldn't have it. Is that kind of, you know, some of those experiences and... Align that with Philip's 
kind of anti-authoritarian, it feels like, approach. Do you think that's kind of what attracted you to Phil, that, that kind of like pushback against some of your experiences of, 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 you know, finding someone that wants to push back against some of this authoritarian? Oh, that, that was definitely a part of it, but mostly he was needy. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, we both traded stories about how horrible our childhood was, and he didn't believe me until he met my mom. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't realize just or don't think about just how abusive women can also be. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've seen it in my own family. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's a different kind of abuse. I think it's more of a psychological abuse that happens. Oh, no, Mom developed the art of uh, beating you without leaving bruises that would prove it. Was, <laughs> you said that Phil also had some... I, I don't know his history, actually, but... Did he also have a, a, grow up in an abusive situation, or? Body was abused, but I think it was more neglect. He wasn't. Dorothy was not violent. Probably verbally, at least not supportive. Maybe abusive to from our perspective, but it's an English thing. Uh, Americans invented childhood. English children were little adults. Do you think that that plays in a little bit to how Phil used to exaggerate stories? Uh, probably. But Phil was abused. It, it, at one of the boarding schools that Dorothy sent him to, they had to send Phil home because he wouldn't eat and we were afraid he would die. He had been abused by a, a teacher and he never said whether it was ma- a man or a woman. And Dorothy sent Phil to a psychiatrist and here's this I think he was seven years old. The child psychiatrist asked him if he played with dirty boys. Phil didn't even know what that meant. He thought, oh, you mean they play in the dirt, they got mud on their hands? Something like that. So that was not helpful. But, yeah, um, mostly Phil's grandfather would go around saying, I'm going to beat that boy. He didn't actually do it, he just scared the daylights out of him. Oh, I have another question, too, about his relationship with his twin sister passing. I wonder if that also points oh. to this kind of metaphysical outlook or mm-hmm. questioning of this level of, you know, just... Absolutely. Phil's sister died at about six weeks, so he never actually met her. Mm. But he had fantasies about playing with her. Mostly, uh, he'd be Roy Rogers, and she'd be Dale Evans, and they'd be riding their horses, and it became very real to him. And I think Dorothy screwed up by telling him when he was very young that he had a twin sister who died. That isn't something you, you tell a toddler. Okay, well, Phil always hoped that reincarnation was true and that his sister would come back and he would meet her, and that's his whole thing about the dark-haired girl. Of course, Anne was a blonde, and he married her. Well, that goes back a little bit to what we were talking about across the street, was there was always three representations of women in Dick's work, I've found, and so oftentimes four. Blonde. Right. The dark-haired, more wild girl, and then the exotic woman, which has always been pretty fascinating to me. But they all seem somewhat indicative of the women who were important to him in his life. Yeah, 
Yeah, I I see the women in his novels as basically the saint and the devil's sister. You've got the prostitute, you've got the bitchy wife, and you've got the victim. And I think I place Rachel in the victim category, even though she lacks, seems to lack empathy. It seems to be upbringing rather than uh, her own fault. What's something about Phil that people would find surprising? Surprising, huh? Well, I suppose he was a baseball fan. Hmm. We watched the World Series, and I'm not sure. I think it was 75, but it was Red Sox versus Reds. Was, who was he a fan of? Hmm? Was he a fan of a particular team? No, but it was the World Series. Right. He was from the Bay Area, so he probably liked the Giants. But I had no clue. We did go to one baseball game at Angel Stadium because we had free tickets. I was just curious, just one last question. Sure. Is, uh, how would you like Phil to be remembered? Oh, wow. <laughs> Sorry. I think as a... You know, no more flawed than any other human being, but overall a caring parent and a great writer. He obviously was not capable of being faithful, but, you know, the more I learn about other artists and musicians and so forth, I, I kind of understand it. He was searching for something and he wouldn't settle for less than, than the ideal in his mind, and no one could live up to that. Nobody's perfect, not even Phil. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.